Hello, and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we welcome Miguel Stilwell Andrade, the Chief Executive Officer of EDP, the Portuguese utility company, and EDP Renewables, the listed renewable energy subsidiary. The energy transition requires significant amounts of capital, for example, to build new wind farms and solar parks. We think the equity markets are particularly well-suited to provide patient equity capital for such companies. And who is better placed to talk about this than Miguel, the CEO of one of the largest renewable energy producers in Europe? EDP listed its subsidiary EDP Renewables in June 2008 in a 1.6 billion euro IPO, just a few months before the collapse of Lehman Brothers slowed capital raising to a halt. More recently, they've been back in the market, raising capital to fund their very ambitious growth plans with a 1.5 billion euro equity raise in 2021 and a billion euro raise in 2023. With Miguel, we talk about how the renewable energy sector has evolved over the last 15 years, the capital allocation decisions for a large listed company, EDP's company-changing decision to invest massively in renewables, and its view on what is needed to achieve the energy transition. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Miguel, thank you very much for joining today. Maybe before we start, can you tell us a bit about what EDP actually is and the different activities you're engaged in? EDP is a global energy company. We operate now in approximately 28 countries, and we are really focused on driving the energy transition. That's how I best describe it. We've got a commitment to going all green by 2030, being out of coal by 2025. Already more than 80% of our power generation is renewables. And so we're really on this path to decarbonize ourselves and to help decarbonize the rest of the economy. We're originally a Portuguese company, so created back in 1976. But really, since the early 2000s, we started growing internationally. And so we grew first into Brazil, late 90s, and then Spain, early 2000s, into the US in 2007, and then we continued to grow. And the most recently went into Asia, based out of Singapore, but in nine countries in Southeast Asia, um, all pretty much focused on renewals. We do also have a networks business in Portugal, Spain, and Brazil. So we've got about 380,000 kilometers of networks in those three countries, which is enough to go around the world several times. And it's an important portfolio stabilizer, so it's a stabilizer. It's a relatively regulated business, but it provides quite a lot of cash flow, which we use to continue to invest also elsewhere. And finally, we have clients. We have only residential clients in Portugal and in Brazil. But increasingly, what we have is corporate clients that we sell renewable energy to in many different countries. So, in, for example, in the U.S., we're the fourth largest renewable energy player in the U.S., and we mostly sell that renewable energy to companies like, or the big tech companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft. We'll also sell it to companies like Walmart. So really, companies that want to do these large contracts for large wind or solar projects, and we'll sell energy to them. So selling renewable energy to these large corporates is one of the ways that 
we use to basically ensure the financing or the that we have an off-taker for this energy when we build these renewable projects. So maybe just to finalize in terms of what is EDP, to give you a relative size, we're about a 20 billion euro market cap company. We have a, a very large subsidiary called EDP Renewables, which is just focused on renewables, which is also about the same size, 20 billion euros market cap. And we have an investment plan over the next four years of around 25 billion euros in these different uh, geographies. So definitely a very large player in the energy transition. But personally, what led you to actually join EDP and then become the CEO of both EDP and EDPR over time? I think in life you find out that sometimes or many times decisions aren't totally rational. I studied in Portugal till I was 18. I then left and went to study mechanical engineering in Scotland. And I was there for four years. One of the years I actually went to Italy to do an Erasmus program. I then came back and decided to switch completely to finance. And so I ended up graduating from university and becoming an investment banker working in London in the late 90s. And then a guy I knew who was working there as well left and he became CFO of EDP in 2000. And most of my friends were at the time, they were leaving the banks to go and work at dot-com companies and like the new economy. And they're saying, forget about the old economy. What's really important is a new economy. And I don't know, I did something which at the time seemed to be slightly crazy, which is to go into a really, really old part of the economy, which is the energy part. Um, and I came back to Portugal to work at EDP. I was here for about a year, and then I went to go do my MBA at MIT in Boston. I came back in 2003. And, you know, I just find it a really interesting sector. And I've had the privilege to work in multiple different roles. I was head of strategy and M&A at the company, and then I was part of the executive team running the distribution business. And then I ran the Spanish operations for a couple of years. I ran the supply business. I then was CFO of the company as well for three years. And then I became CEO in 2000. I've been involved in multiple areas of the company throughout this period. And I find it a super exciting sector. I say that many of our investors looked at utilities as we wanted them to be boring companies. What he wanted was to be predictable, provide a dividend. You can just put your money there and don't think about it. And yet everything is changing. I mean, that's not true anymore. The way you produce and consume energy is changing dramatically. The way that you distribute energy is changing dramatically. Everything is becoming digitalized. You're having decarbonized all the energy mix. So I find it a fascinating sector and I've really enjoyed it. And I found different opportunities. And so I've gone on staying. It's just amazing how the utilities business has changed since you joined the company, right? And today when you're deploying, as you're saying, 25 billion euros into new projects all across the world and using new technologies as well, because the windmills have evolved and the solar panels are evolving. And it's, uh, it's actually become a very much of a tech deployment business as well. No, for sure. I mean, there's clearly a revolution going on in the sector. What has changed just over the last 10, 15 years, renewables used to be seen as a niche play, expensive energy. And nowadays, I don't think anyone cannot look at renewables. I mean, it's the most competitive source of energy. It's uh, certainly the cleanest. So really, I think there is this massive transformation going on. And I think one of the most interesting things for me has been to see certain companies being very defensive about their legacy businesses and trying to protect that. And I think other companies like EDP really embracing the change and saying, this can be a fantastic opportunity for us and let's go for it. You know, and that's served us well. I think we've managed to grow internationally and really change our business, change our portfolio as a result of taking those decisions. I want to look back a bit at the IPO in 2008 of uh, EDP Renewables, because you had EDP that was already listed, and then you chose to spin off EDPR in 2008. It was a market cap of 8 billion euros at the time, quite a large IPO. What drove the choice to list the subsidiary back then? It's important to place ourselves back at that time. EDP had made a large investment buying a company called Horizon Wind Energy in the US. 
one of the largest renewable energy players there. We've done that in early 2007. And it required a lot of capital to continue to invest and build out that business. At the EDP level, it wasn't possible to raise additional capital because some of the investors didn't want to put in additional capital. They didn't want it to be diluted. We also couldn't raise debt because once they are balance sheet was already relatively stretched. And so we could either have slowed down the investment and not taken advantage of that, and that would have been a real pity. Or what we did was let's carve out EDP renewables and see if investors are willing to invest directly into that subsidiary. And the truth is, you know, we spoke to several financial advisors. We, we looked at you know, what other peers were doing, and we went down that path. So we raised equity directly at EDP renewables and ended up being a very successful transaction. And we were able to raise, as you say, more than one and a half billion euros at the time, which is extremely important for us. Here, timing was everything. Again, placing ourselves back in 2008, at the beginning of 2008, there were already some signs of some financial instability. And you already had some banks in the US doing impairments, having some issues around their balance sheet. And we were racing against time to basically try and get the IPO done by June of 2008. Very practical reason. The Euro 2008 was happening in June. And what we were told is, listen, you can't raise money when there's the, a Euro Cup going on because no one is going to pay any attention. Especially with the retail trends, right? <laughs> Especially with retail and others. Because no one's going to pay any attention. Analysts won't want to see you guys. And so actually most of the banks were saying you should wait till after the summer and then you'll have a clear window and you can raise capital. And we we're like, no, we want to do it. You know, there's a market there. We just make sure we do it before the Euro starts and we'll get it done. So we actually had to really run a lot to get it done before, let's say, the end of May, beginning of June. And we did. We managed to get it done. Fortunately, because after the summer of 2008, I think everyone will remember, we had Lehman Brothers and the world collapsed. And it would have been impossible to do the IPO. So, I mean, we can go a little bit deeper if you want there. But the biggest lesson I got out of that was if there's a window, you go for it. You should never put back a good IPO, right? Yeah. You should always do it when, uh, when the timing is there. Exactly. From the investor side, I mean, if you look back in 2008, the economics were not exactly the same, right? There was a lot of subsidies. Was there a lot of pushback about just the economics of renewable energy at the time? I'd say there are two ways of looking at it. One is from the investor side. The other is from the consumer side. To be honest, from the investor side, this was highly regulated. It's true it was subsidized at the time, but there were very attractive returns. And so you were able to deploy a lot of capital with decent returns, not fantastic returns, but reasonable returns. So from the investor side, that wasn't necessarily a problem. It was more an issue of, okay, is there any regulatory risk? How fast can you grow? I mean, those type of questions. I think from the consumer side, that's where potentially there were issues around, okay, if this energy is being subsidized. Is it going to be much more expensive? And is that going to mean a higher bill for us? I think that was true back in 2007, 2008, or that decade. Nowadays, renewables is much more competitive than any other source of energy, and it doesn't require subsidies anymore. But in terms of returns, the returns haven't changed that much, actually. It's just that you don't need the subsidies anymore to get the same type of returns as you did then. And within EDP, as you're saying, a large regulated utility, this was quite a large company-changing bet that you did on renewable energy development. What were the discussions you had at that time around this? Fortunately, Portugal and Spain, both at the time, were very pro-renewables, more perhaps than other countries. And there was a stable regulatory framework, and there were relatively ambitious goals already at that time for renewables. So in Portugal and Spain, we were lucky to have an ecosystem where it was possible to deploy significant amounts of capital and get decent returns under this sort of regulatory framework. That wasn't possible in other countries. I mean, since then, obviously, the world has evolved and it's changed a lot. 
So I think that was one point. The second point is that renewables were seen as a niche play. A lot of the other utilities at the time, what they liked was big projects. I mean, you know, a big coal plant, a big nuclear plant, or even gas plants. Renewables were seen as a sort of sideshow, something that wasn't very credible. Certainly, if you were a traditional utility guy, I mean, you didn't really consider renewables to be a credible technology. And I think that meant that we were able to invest for a relatively long time and build up critical mass when many other people were distracted and not really paying that much attention to renewables. So I think it was a combination of issues, but basically we found that niche, we found that opportunity, and we just uh, went for it. And from the retail investor side, I mean, your retail tranche was 15%, which is quite large. I assume that was mostly Portuguese retail. And it was very popular. You had eight times over subscription on that uh, retail tranche. What strategies did you do to get retail interest for the IPO, which probably actually helped on the execution as well? First of all, EDP has a very strong brand, certainly in Portugal and even in Spain. And so I think that helped because we were basically IPOing a company but that had a brand that people recognized and that was seen as being a solid play. There was a complication because actually we are EDP Renewables was a little bit of a strange animal in the sense that it was a Spanish company listed in Portugal. So it has this strange uh, governance. But retail investors, I think, were quite enthusiastic about it. I mean, it was an investment in a company that they knew, or at least they knew the brand, sustainable, you know, and had a potential high growth. And so obviously we did a retail campaign. And so we worked with the local banks in Portugal and Spain. They normally have this ability to distribute to shares and to talk to some of their investors, you know, some retail investors. And so ultimately, I think this combination of factors meant that we were able to raise quite a lot of capital, or at least a lot of interest from retail investors. But the bulk was from institutional investors at the end of the day. And in terms of pricing, you already had the benefit of some of your peers being listed. So you had uh, NL, Renewable Energy, you had Iberdrola. How did you think about pricing the IPO? Was having that peer group already listed a good sort of uh, indication of where the market would be? Or uh, did you uh, use another method? Oh, it was very important. I think certainly in these situations, I mean, investors will always try to benchmark you against someone else. And if there are more peers, they will sort of try to find proxies and, and figure out, you know, are you bigger, are you smaller, are you better? What countries are you in? You know, what are the similarities? And then use that benchmark, that market benchmark to do your own pricing. So I think we were able to come in with a relatively good pricing. So in line with peers, we certainly wasn't at a discount. And I think that was also important to us. You know, we are one of the leading players of renewables and we were recognized as that. EDP Renewables continues to this day to be one of the few, I mean, many of the other renewable players in the meantime have been folded back into their companies. Yeah, today, EDPR is the benchmark, right? Especially in Europe. It is the benchmark. It is the largest renewable energy player in Europe. And your choice then of keeping it listed, because as you said, Enel, EDF, Iberdrola all basically folded these companies back into the mothership. Your choice of keeping EDPR listed, what drove that? I mean, one part is that it's expensive to buy it back, to be honest. That's, let's say, not a positive reason for it. But the positive reason, certainly today, is that it gives a lot of transparency to an important part of our business. And it's a way of raising capital. So we raised over one and a half billions in the IPO back in 2008, but then we raised another one and a half billions in 2021, and we just raised a billion now in 2023. So that ability to go out to the market and raise capital from investors who want to invest specifically in renewables. I mean, we've also raised capital at the EDP level, but if you want to invest directly in a renewable player, a secure play, then you invest in EDP renewables. And I think that ability to attract those type of investors has meant that it's trading at a premium at a much higher multiple than, for example, EDP itself or other comparables. So you can raise relatively cheap capital at EDP renewables. So 
the transparency, the visibility on the assets, the ability to raise capital on very good terms. I think all of those mean that we are very comfortable with the current situation where you have both companies um, traded. I mean, never say never. To be honest, we did try to buy it back in 2017. At the time, we, we put an offer and I think shareholders felt that it was worth more and it was. I mean, EPR was trading at about seven and a half euros per share. It's currently trading around 18 to 20 euros per share. It's been as much as 24 euros per share. So it's certainly grown and it's a much bigger company nowadays. So we're comfortable with the current situation and basically that has several advantages, I think. And how do you think about capital allocation when you are sitting at the EDP and EDPR level? Because it seems to me like you have a lot of possibilities. You can go out and get that financing. You could do project equity for your specific projects. You do asset recycling quite often, which is one of the advantages of being EDPR. And then you can also raise fresh equity for the company EDPR or EDP. So I'm just wondering about how you think about this capital allocation job that you have. So I think the first thing is to recognize that this is a very capital intensive business. I mean, we deploy billions of euros over time. A lot of it is self-financed, so our own organic cash flow. And I think that's the first source of funds that we have, although we also then need to pay dividends and we have a relatively generous dividend policy. We can raise debt. And so that's also an important part of the management of our balance sheet. We'll go on raising debt over time. We raise hybrids. So hybrids are considered 50% equity, 50% debt for rating agency purposes. Um, we can sell assets and let's say capture that value and then reinvest it back into the business. So that asset rotation strategy that you mentioned. And then finally, sort of almost at the other extreme from organic cash flow is actually raise new equity from the shareholders. So that for us, we only do if we think we have really good opportunities that we can't do with any of these other instruments. So the way we look at it is there are a series of instruments for financing the investment. So we look at sort of what is our growth possibilities, what are the, the opportunities that we have? Are they good investment opportunities? Do we think that they're worth pursuing? And then we'll look at this range of instruments and see you know, what's the cheapest and best way to finance that. We want to keep a solid balance sheet, so we'll never raise more debt than what is necessary to keep a triple B rating. And so it's a constant mix of these different instruments that we we'll use to make sure we have a solid balance sheet, that we're not asking too much equity from our shareholders. I mean, obviously, they'll always question you if why you're raising equity. So you have to have a pretty good business case for it. But we see it as sort of a full range of instruments that we should use. We actually have quite a number of companies, especially in the energy transition space, much smaller than EDPR, that are looking at an IPO. And they're wondering about these same questions. How should I actually structure my capital allocation? Should I be the owner of all my projects? Or should I bring in the project equity partner, an infrastructure fund, for example? Do you have any advice for these companies that are much smaller, maybe $200 million market cap today, but are growing in quite successful niches? I mean, the way we look at it is if they're good investment opportunities, what's important is to be able to execute them and you know, finance them, execute them, get them done. And so we want to do as much investment or take as advantage of as many investment opportunities as we can, as is reasonable. And then we need to figure out how to finance it. And so I think the question that people need to ask themselves is how much capital do I need to do the investment plan that I want to do that I think is valuable or that's you know, creating value? And then look at the instruments to finance it. But it doesn't go the other way around. I think you need to look first at what are the opportunities you have and then how do you finance it? And then try to square the circle. Maybe you've got limited financing capabilities, so maybe you'll need to reduce the amount of opportunities you can take advantage of. But I think it has to start with what is there, what can you take advantage of, what opportunities are there, and then work backwards. The other thing I'd say is not be emotional about projects or assets. I mean, we are quite happy to, and this was something that we started doing six or seven years ago, which is building the projects. We'll keep some of them, 
and some of them will sell and will typically will have a capital gain on that sale and will be able to redeploy that capital back into the business. But I think certainly from, let's say, an engineering company, normally you're quite emotional or you could tend to be emotional about the projects and think, oh, I don't want to sell anything. You know, I want to hold on to everything. But I think our mission is really to invest well, to drive this energy transition. And so if that means that at some point you need to sell some assets to be able to build new ones that are profitable, then you should do it and not just hold on to what you have because then you also don't move forward. And I think for us, that's been one of the most important parts. It's our portfolio has changed dramatically over time. We've sold gas assets, we've sold coal assets, we've gone on say, selling certain assets to free up the balance sheet to reinvest in new assets that we can build and you know, to really drive this transition. Between 2008 and 2021, you actually didn't come to the market to raise equity as ADPR. But then in 2021, you raised one and a half billion. It's actually the first transaction we participated in as Amundsen when we launched. So quite emotional about that one still. But uh, then you came back in 2023, you raised a billion euros underwritten by GIC. So obviously this is a great way to raise capital. It's very fast. It's quite a lot of money. But what changed actually in 2021 that drove you to then come to the market? First, we had a new team. So I joined in, in 2000 and we came up with a new business plan, which really wanted to accelerate the build out and renewable. So to give you an idea, we were building about 700 megawatts per year in the decade 2010 to 2020. And we came out and we said, we're going to build, well, currently around four gigawatts per year. So we're multiplying it by more than five times the number of megawatts that we wanted to install every year. And the reason for that is because we were seeing the opportunities. And so we were ramping up. And to do that, we needed to raise capital. So the direct answer is you had a new executive team coming in, new business plan. You had a big, let's say, ramp up of the potential in growth of renewables. You had, for example, already quite a lot of talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, or at the time it's called the Build Back Better Bill in, in the U.S. So there's already speculation about you know additional growth opportunities in the U.S. You had Europe also with quite ambitious goals. And so we said, let's be more aggressive in terms of our growth plans. And so that was basically the reason. So we really decided to ramp up the, the growth and take advantage of the opportunities we were seeing. And can you explain a bit then how 1 billion euros raised in equity, how does then actually translate into capital deployed? Because obviously you're leveraging that billion in certain ways. So how does it actually translate into your business plan? So I think it's, um, I mean, you can typically multiply it by two to three times in terms of available balance sheet capacity. So to the extent that you have a typical debt to equity ratio of 50-50%, I mean, if you raise an additional billion of equity, you might be able to raise an additional billion of debt. And then you also have the organic cash flow coming from the project that you've built. So those two billion of additional investment will itself generate cash flow, which can be reinvested back into the business. So a billion of equity get to maybe two and a half or more times leverage. So the way we thought about it was, again, looking at the opportunities, looking at the markets we were investing in, figuring out how much additional debt we could raise, how much cash flow we had, and then trying to sort of plug the gap with equity. Obviously, there are also very practical limitations. I mean, I could say I could invest another 5 billion, but I can't raise 5 billion in the market. So there are some very practical considerations when you start talking to financial advisors and you start looking at what is your market cap, what is the depth of the market, you know, of the investors that you're tapping? Typically, you have these conversations over time and they'll tell you, listen, you, know, you can probably raise a billion relatively easily, a billion and a half. It might start getting a little bit more difficult. If you try to go to two billion, it's, we're not saying it's impossible, but the pricing will get very expensive and you sort of go on calibrating. So for us, you know, and for different companies, it'll be a different discussion, maybe different level, maybe smaller, or bigger. But I think for each company, it's looking at what makes sense and what the market can absorb of additional equity. 
And so I think, again, we built those relationships with financial advisors over many, many years. And so I think we ourselves also have a relatively good feeling for what's in the market. I mean, we talk to investors all the time through the various roadshows that we do. And so we, we get a sense for what is possible and what's not possible or what is attractive or not. And when you compare to your peers who are then part of larger groups, do you think it's offering you an advantage, that sort of separate listing of EDPR? I think at the moment, yes, for sure. For the reasons I mentioned, I think transparency, the ability to raise capital, the fact that it is a pure plane, so it deserves a premium multiple and it gets a premium multiple, which typically is then reflected also on the VDP, say, mother company. So I think even more intangible things, let's say, attracting people to work at EDP renewables. It's a pure play. So even sort of the purpose and the, the way we position ourselves in the market for you know, attracting talent makes a difference. I think if some people want to work in a large renewal-based company, not sort of a more traditional utility. So I think all of these different factors mean that it actually ends up being quite interesting to have an illicit company. I wanted to look a bit ahead at the energy transition space more broadly. And one of the things is the cost of developing renewable energy. It's been going down over time, but now recently it started going up. And you have the wind OEMs who are actually struggling to put up positive margins. So how do you think about the cost side of this renewable energy deployment going forward? I don't think it's particular to the renewable energy, but it's just more generic. I mean, over the last 18 months or so, you've had just a much higher inflation overall. I mean, whether it's all of your costs. And, and certainly for renewable energy projects, wind in particular, you had a very large increase in, for example, issues like the price of steel, the cost of transportation. And then the OEMs themselves had issues in that they had assumed certain contracts, certain commitments, for example, to customers. I mean, some of them like ourselves with a fixed price. And if they hadn't hedged their commodity prices on the back end, then you get squeezed. I think what you saw was you basically had very low volatility and sort of very stable prices in general over a long period. And so people were relatively comfortable in taking some risk around that, locking in fixed prices with their customers and maybe not necessarily locking in all of the, the cost side, sort of in hedging their steel costs and then labor costs, et cetera. And suddenly you got squeezed with this tremendous cost inflation. So I think that's certainly at least my view of what's happened to a lot of the OEMs. I certainly hope we get through this because I think it's important to have a healthy supply chain. And so, you know, we've obviously talked, for example, certainly to Vestas, Siemens Gamesa, uh, Nordex, I mean, some of the largest turbine suppliers in the market. You know, and obviously we want to make sure we, this whole supply chain works well because it's not in our interest. I don't think it's anybody's interest that they should go through tough times. On the solar side, it's slightly different. I mean, the solar side is very much dominated, as you know, by Chinese manufacturers or Southeast Asian manufacturers. Polysilicon had a very dramatic increase, but also a relatively dramatic decrease. And so it's gone up and down and solar prices are back to pretty much the prices that they were before, with one exception, which is the US. I mean, the US, the price of solar panels in the US is still about double the price that it is, for example, in Europe. And that's just a function of the fact with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, I mean, there's much more, a bigger push to move the supply chain back into the US. And there's tariffs, there's difficulty in importing, a bunch of different factors, but it just means that basically there's been a higher cost of solar in the US. And what about on the public policy side? I'm sure you interact a lot with regulators and you probably have your frustrations with the speed of uh, regulation. What are the major bottlenecks you see on the public policy side? So the key issues we see with public policy is the speed, as you say, of permitting, of licensing, of getting interconnection to the network. And you can break it down by market. I think the European Commission has actually done a good job over the last 12, 18 months. After the war broke out in Ukraine, 
there's a lot of speculation about obviously the reduction of gas into or the cut of gas into Europe and you know that we would descend into this terrible recession that the winter of 22 23 would be absolutely terrible the truth is we've gone through that winter and we're now in the summer and, and actually prices have come down significantly there weren't any sort of major cuts I think Europe has done a good job. The member states have done a good job at, at that level. However, I do think that at the more granular level in terms of actually then building up renewable projects so that you can reduce that dependency on gas, because now if it's not dependency on gas from Russia, it's from Qatar or it's Nigeria or it's the US. I mean, we need to get away from that dependency on, on third countries and, and particularly because it's more expensive than if you can actually build out renewables. So I think the commission has given certain guidelines that you should simplify the licensing and permitting and you should accelerate the projects. It's now down to the member states and some member states are being more active, more proactive than others, but there's still a lot to be done. As you say, I think there is some frustration. In general, I'd say the companies that can scale up much more quickly than some of these public administrations, which need to, you know, there's been a big overload of some of these public administrations because they're really having to process a lot more requests for permits and licenses and so forth. But they need to, as I say, you need to digitalize it, these processes, you need to standardize them, you need to simplify them, you need to provide more resources, more people in some cases to just process all of this. So it's not enough to just talk about the energy transition and you wanted to build up renewals, you actually need to allocate resources. The companies can do it relatively quickly, but the governments, the administrations, they also need to do it so that you can actually get this done. That's very much the European paradigm. The U.S. is different. And maybe just a quick word on the U.S. The U.S. As you know, came out in August of last year with the Inflation Reduction Act. We're coming up almost on a year. So it was approved. Majorly consequential piece of legislation, really generous incentives and support for build-out of renewables, electrical vehicles, but also with what we call a relatively protectionist component. So really incentivizing made in the U.S., bringing the manufacturing supply chain into the U.S., both solar and, um, let's say, on, on the wind side. So it's a slightly different dynamic there. I'd say it's relatively simpler to license and to permit in the U.S. There's still bottlenecks, still a lot of requests, for example, for interconnection, which need to get done. But I think the U.S. will move forward maybe more quickly than Europe in some cases. Are there any countries you think are leading there in terms of digitalization and efficiency of the permitting? I'd actually say Portugal, even though it's a small country, is doing a relatively good job. You know, we're already at about 60 to 70% renewable penetration. They've done things which can sound very basic, but can be actually relatively important. Things like if you have this certain capacity awarded, let's say in the past of 100 megawatts, they said you can go up to 110 or 120, so you can put in more capacity as long as you then curtail it so you don't inject more than the required capacity. I mean, what does this mean? It means most of the time you're not operating at full capacity. I mean, the wind is not blowing at its maximum speed all the time. And so if you put in more capacity, probably for the average, you'll be able to inject more energy into the network. And maybe there'll be a couple of hours over the year where you actually maybe need to shut off some of the turbines just so we don't put in too much energy or overload the system. But you can optimize that. And so you don't need to be dimensioning it so that you never go the maximum capacity. Like you can actually control the amount of capacity that you're actually using. So maybe that's just one small example. But another one, which I think is extremely important as well, is what we call hybridization which is putting multiple technologies on the same line, on the same interconnection with the network. So you can have wind, you can have solar, you can have hydro, you can have batteries, you have combinations of these. And they don't always operate at the same time. I mean, the wind isn't always necessarily blowing during the day, but the solar is working during the day. It doesn't work at night. There's more hydro in the winter, obviously, than in the summer. Combining these different technologies on the same line, on the same sort of tube, if you want to inject it into the network, you can optimize this energy. 
This is actually something which is relative. I mean, the computer, you can model what these profiles would look like and you can optimize it. And that's a better way of using the existing infrastructure without needing to put in a lot of additional infrastructure. Unfortunately, that's not possible in a lot of countries. And so it would be one way where if you have, for example, a lot of already existing wind projects, you can suddenly put in a lot of solar projects on the same point without needing sort of all of this licensing permitting. So I think sometimes there are little things where which sound like little things, but actually you can scale up much more quickly than you otherwise would. And so we've been advocating that in many different member states and, and even, in, for example, in the U.S. That sounds like very good suggestions. If we look outside renewable electricity production, you invested in Life, a French hydrogen developer, at the time of their IPO, actually, as a cornerstone investor, where we were also cornerstones alongside you. I'm just wondering, how do you think about such sort of opportunities in fields that are related to your main activity? And are you looking at smaller actors there? Our investment in life, it's driven off green hydrogen. And green hydrogen is basically green electricity turned into a gas. I mean, that's maybe one way of sort of describing it. 70% of the cost of hydrogen is renewable energy, renewable electricity. So we're looking at hydrogen. I mean, as you know, there are many areas of the economy that can't be electrified. So the easiest way to decarbonize the economy is to electrify it because electricity, you can turn it into green electricity relatively easily. But there are certain parts of the economy that you can't electrify. And so hydrogen is seen as a possible energy factor that can be used to decarbonize things like steel manufacturing, uh, certain fuels, synthetic air fuels, ammonia. I mean, places like that, you can use green hydrogen. Life is essentially a developer of hydrogen projects. And so we're we invested in life, but we also see ourselves as a partner in the sense that we bring along the expertise in renewables. And hopefully we can partner on projects where we help them have competitive renewable projects that can then feed and produce that green hydrogen for whatever commercial use they're doing. It'll take time. I mean, one of the things I've, I've said recently, I think there's slightly inflated expectations in relation to hydrogen certainly in the short, medium term. Personally, I don't believe the European targets for 2030. I think they're super ambitious. I think we tend to, in general, I don't know if it's a fact, but it's a well-known sort of a view that people tend to overestimate the impact certain technologies will have in the short term and underestimate the impact they'll have in the medium, long term. And I think this is probably one of those cases. I think people are expecting hydrogen to come in much faster than it probably will. And so there are inflated expectations. We'll then go into the valley of disillusionment and then we'll come up to the slope of enlightenment. I think those are the technical terms. And, and I think hydrogen will be an important part of the energy mix going forward. But I think we just need to be careful not to overshoot on the inflated expectations or to undershoot on the, the valley of disillusionment when we see that a lot of the projects actually aren't coming out because the economics don't work or because technically it's not viable. And so we are investing in, in hydrogen. We are taking a very pragmatic view. For example, in Spain recently, the European Commission awarded seven IPSE projects. The IPSE projects are projects of common European interest. And so this allows them to be funded. Uh, supported so that you can actually make them viable because in the short term they need public support. We want three of seven, which is a very high hit ratio because if we had, you know, Iberjola, Natergy, Repsol, et cetera, they all won just one of them and we had three of the seven projects. So I think we have a relatively good base and knowledge of what's happening in the hydrogen space. We do think that things will take longer than people are expecting, but that we will get there in the end. But we need to be quite pragmatic and I think reasonable or lucid about what can actually be done in the short, medium term. And what role do you think the listed equity markets have in sort of helping fund the energy transition? Because you have a lot of infrastructure funds. How do you think about the role of the listed markets here? I think it's an important instrument, which can give a lot of visibility to the market. In certain cases, it can provide sort of a, a way of financing investments with a relatively low cost of capital. So as I mentioned earlier, we see it as multiple different instruments, including equity. And equity comes in two forms, private and public. 
we'll also do private. I mean, we also have investors coming in directly in some of our projects and taking a stake in a wind project or a solar project. I think listed works well when it's a portfolio of projects. I mean, and when you're looking for just relatively patient equity in a sense, normally private equity will have a, a, a timeline, which was within five years, seven years maximum, typically. Now it doesn't mean you can go a little bit longer. They'll, they'll have to rotate out. They'll have to sell those projects again. And so it's not so long-term. I mean, if you have a listed company, that can be a long-term play. And so in that sense, it's slightly more patient. Maybe it won't be the same investors, but you know, you'll still have the equity there in some form or you'll have raised it in some form. Any fun facts you could share from uh, either your IPO or the roadshows you've done since being CEO and meeting with investors? The fun fact is it's, it's a lot of hard work, <laughs> but you do get to meet Super interesting people. I mean, you know, um, you, know you, you mentioned we raised equity from GIC, from Adia, and so Abu Dhabi. We had Norwegians. I think it's always incredibly interesting and insightful to a lot of times have these conversations with, you know, sophisticated investors, get their view on, you know, how the market is doing. And it's a lot of hard work. You'll get a lot of people that won't invest, but you'll get some that will invest. The fun fact is that it is fun. One of the things that I most enjoy is actually talking to investors and getting their, you know, their feeling for how the market's doing and what they're, how they're seeing our peers. GIC, I mean, it started off this relationship. So they invested 1.25 billion euros, so 850 million euros in um, EDP renewables and then another 400 million in EDP because we also raised the billion at EDP to finance the buyout of EDP Brazil. But they were a small investor in EDP originally as a public investor. Then we bought a company in Singapore called Sunseed. And I started traveling to Singapore and we decided, let's go and visit GIC. And, and the guy there was like, oh, well, meet our private. And so I met with them there in Singapore. Then you know, a few weeks later, we met with their team in uh, London. Then I did a call with the, the head of infrastructure globally and then ended up meeting the global CIO in, in Davos. We ended up talking to all of the different stakeholders in GIC. And I think it was incredibly insightful and useful that process. But it just shows that you really need to play a patient game. This was played out over many, many months, in fact, years in some cases, for example, in the case of Vadia. And these are conversations that you will go and having with investors over time. And then someday, maybe you'll need to actually pick up the phone and call them and say, listen, we're thinking of raising capital on these terms. And you know, are, are you interested or not? Would you come over the wall or not? So it's definitely something that you shouldn't just think of it as you're raising it for the IPO. These are long-term relationships in many cases that you're building up well before you actually raise the, the capital and well after you raise the capital. At some point, I had someone tell me on the board that the market is a mythical creature. And I was like, well, no, it's people. And it's people who are investing. And you need to build up those relationships because those people on the other side who are deploying capital, they need to know the company. They need to know who's the management team. They're taking decisions. And so a lot of times we talk about the market, but the market is made up of individuals who are taking decisions every single day. And, and I think those relationships over time are incredibly important to develop because as I say, you shouldn't just think of it as on a transactional basis. That it's like, okay, I've raised the capital. Bye-bye. No, it starts well before and it never ends. It's I an mean, ongoing process. And in your case, it's a track record built up over 15 years of EDPR as a separate company, right? And then you're actually able to raise a set of billion euros overnight with some very high quality investors. And then it's very fast once you get there, but it's a long, long way to get there, right? Miguel, thank you very much. This was very interesting. We went through a lot of the fields of energy transition together and uh, learned a lot in the process. So uh, thank you for that. And best of luck with uh, deploying the strategy going forward. I think it's important for you as a company and also for Europe and the US and Asia. So looking forward to that. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, thank you for all the questions and hopefully it was interesting and I'm happy to talk again. 
Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Miguel today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com. If you're interested in our views on the IPO process in general, please follow our LinkedIn feed on Amundsen Investment Management.